in corporate governance and in movies. It's really all the same thing. I'm very interested in why things don't work. Everybody wants them to work. Everybody wants the movie to work. And when it doesn't work, it's very interesting to think about why. And the same thing in the business world and in the regulatory world. There are a lot of people involved who work very hard and try to predict the future. And when they don't work, it's very interesting to think about why. Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Thursday, July 28, 2022. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, as well as listen to our podcasts, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of the usual places. My guest today for our 35th episode is Nell Minow, who's speaking to us from Washington. Is that right, Nell? I'm not sure where you (laughs) are today. Just outside of Washington in Virginia. In Virginia. Wonderful. Welcome, and thank you so much for being my guest today. It's my pleasure. Let me tell you a bit about uh, Nell. I should let our listeners know that talking with Nell represents a bit of a reunion. We actually went to school together, Nutria High School in suburban Chicago. Since that time, I've followed Nell's two-track career as a corporate watchdog and as a movie maven. Our high school had 4,000 students at the time. So the fact that I remember Nell means that she has always stood out from the crowd. She went to law school at the University of Chicago, and I think while I was a student there too, we were on the same campus. She has worked as an attorney for the EPA, the OMB, the DOJ. She was formerly the principal of Lens, an activist investment firm, where our listeners probably first heard about her. She became known as the CEO killer and the queen of corporate governance. She is now head of Value Edge Advisors, a corporate governance consulting firm. She has written hundreds of articles on this subject. So now I always ask my guests how they first got interested in what became their life's work. You have a parallel career in entertainment. I remember at Nutria, you worked with the WNTH team. Nutria was the first high school to receive, as I, I remember, an FM license. And I think the next year, a CCTV license. So what first inspired you um, I know kind of what inspired you for on the entertainment side, but how did you become interested in corporate governance? Uh, there are really two answers to that. The first answer is that uh, I was pregnant with my second child. I was working at the Justice Department. Um, my most important job requirement was I wanted to work three days a week. And other than that, I needed just two things. I needed to feel that I was learning something all the time because I have ADD and I get bored very quickly. And I needed to feel like I was on the side of the good guys. So I uh, was thinking about leaving uh, government after spending eight years there. And I met a guy when we were both working um, on a project for then Vice President George Bush uh, named Robert Monks. And he offered me a job when I was eight and a half months pregnant. And he said, I'm going to start a uh, new company that's going to 
help institutional investors on corporate governance issues. And of that sentence, I recognized the words the and help. And that was about it. I really didn't know anything about it. But I had worked with him enough to know that he was a true visionary, a fascinating person, very easy to work with, uh, very cooperative. And um, it, and he said I could work three days a week and that I could take eight <laughs> months off uh, to be on maternity leave and not start until Labor Day. So um, I, I said, OK, fine. Uh, uh, this is, uh, this sounds great. And when he explained to me what was involved, I said, this is a perfect job for me because we're on the right side. We're going to write op-eds and file amicus briefs, but entrenched interests will never let us go anywhere with it. It's a perfect job for somebody who just wants to work three days a week. And what I didn't know was that I was arriving just at the very fulcrum moment of corporate governance when the first shareholder resolutions by institutional investors were being filed, when Greenmail was uh, waking up the sleeping giant of the large investors. Um, and uh, and it was just a fascinating time to arrive. So the company that we started together uh, is now a big multinational called Institutional Shareholder Services that is a very influential firm when it comes to voting proxies. But this, the more important answer to your question is that it was really only in retrospect, many, many years later, after Bob Monks and I had started four companies together, we sold the first three, because like me, he's a lot more interested in starting things than running them after they become successful, um, that I understood that there was really one strong connection between every job I ever had. That included my job at EPA right after law school, my job at OMB, where I was involved in overseeing um, all domestic regulatory programs and using the cost-benefit analysis that I learned at the University of Chicago, uh, and then in corporate governance, which is, and in movies. It's really all the same thing. It is I'm very interested in why things don't work. Everybody wants them to work. Everybody wants the movie to work. And when it doesn't work, it's very interesting to think about why. And the same thing in the business world and in the regulatory world. There are a lot of people involved who work very hard and try to predict the future. And when they don't work, it's very interesting to think about why. Now, when we were at New Trier, uh, a teacher once said to me, uh, you think you can make a living as a smart aleck? And I did not realize that was a rhetorical question. Uh, I thought of that as I won't ask you which teacher that was. (laughs) I thought of that as career counseling. And it is a very it is a very good series of jobs for a outspoken, opinionated person, uh, bossy oldest child. And so in a way, even though I think of my entry into corporate governance as being very random. It did turn out to be the perfect place for me to be, to be complaining about outrageous CEO pay plans, about green mail, about corporate abuses, and be able to try to do something about it. Well, it was so a combination of serendipity and family values. And of course, you ended up being much more busy than you ever thought. Yeah, a little bit, (laughs) I know. 
Well, you know, one interesting term that you used to describe ESG was organic. And I wonder if you can explain why, and I think in part you already just have, but I, I'd be really interested in, in hearing your explanation. Well, for people who are not familiar, ESG is the fastest growing area in the world of investment right now. There are trillions of dollars invested in one way or another in ESG labeled funds. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. Those are, that's, or those are three gigantic catch-all categories that encompass a lot. And many people will argue wrongly that ESG is non-financial or non-pecuniary or that it's about warming the cockles of your heart versus increasing the value of your portfolio. And I would argue that's not, it's the contrary, that, you know, there's a reason that accounting principles are referred to as generally accepted and not certifiably accurate. And the reason that they're constantly being revised, they're not that great. And they go back to an era of hard assets, where hard assets were the most important thing that a company had. So we're pretty good after more than 100 years of doing generally accepted accounting principles of valuing real estate and buildings and equipment. We are terrible at valuing the most important assets that our companies have right now, which is human capital, intellectual property. And ESG is an effort to fill in those gaps that accounting leaves behind. It is a, a, a holistic thing. The problem is that ESG has become so successful. In fact, in the current issue of, of uh, The Economist, the cover story, the entire issue is devoted to sort of debunking ESG, which is, of course, one of the critical uh, defining moments in the history of any movement is when you start getting the pushback. But um, the first of all, the appetite for ESG is far in excess of the of the ability to provide it. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that because it is so successful, because it is so badly defined, everybody's slapping ESG on everything. I have a small brokerage account myself because I just like to try to keep my hand in. And it's quite small, but I do a little bit of stock picking. And all of a sudden one day, a button showed up on the dashboard and it said, do you want an ESG analysis of your portfolio? And it doesn't say, where does that <laughs> come from? What is it? Uh, who is assigning these values? Nothing. So sure, I'll play. So I hit the button and it, it gives me what looks, you know, looks very quantifiable, a pie chart, a pie chart. What could be more mathematical than a pie chart? So I, again, it's not explaining what any of this means, but okay, I got a pie chart. And interestingly enough, another button pops up and it says, now do you want a separate uh, assessment of your portfolio for civil rights and human values. Well, I thought that was already a part of ESG. I have, again, no idea where this is coming from. So it's very faddish in that respect. And in that, res in, in that category, right. it reminds me of in the 1970s when the same thing was true of organic. Everybody got very excited about having organic food, organic vegetables. And so food manufacturers just slapped the term organic on everything. It didn't have any definition. And that's when you need the government to step in and say, okay, you cannot use that term. Just like the government has made a rule about what is juice. It's juice if it's just juice. If you add sugar to it, they have to call it something else. That way we have some, uh, when there's a, a, an informational asymmetry to that extent, 
when there's mm-hmm. a collective choice problem, only the government, there are things only the market can do. There are things only the government can do and only the government can set up those kinds of definitions. So that's why I say that ESG is like organic. And in fact, the SEC uh, has a rulemaking going on right now. I'm working on my comment uh, that will require brokerage houses like the one I use to explain what they mean. Instead of just saying, here's a pie chart, they have to explain where that comes from. And I, so I think right. we've got a long way to go before we make as much progress with ESG as we've already spent 100 years doing with accounting principles. I think your point about measuring what uh, is not easily measurable yet is really an important one. And also that's entering in economic circles. It's something people are talking about in terms of GDP and GDP growth. Are we measuring really what our assets are? And it, the, and, and of course, we're not because the world has changed in the last hundred years since, exactly. you know, every neoclassical single, economics. Every yeah. single glossy annual report that you get from every company says our employees are our most important asset. First of all, they don't treat them that way. And second of all, we certainly don't evaluate their value that way. And so, you know, there, there's a long way for, uh, between what you get on a financial report and what you can really understand about a company. And, and we do as human beings have a tendency to measure what can be measured and consider it important uh, just because as Barbie used to say, uh, math is hard and you just, you know, we, we have to just grapple with that. Uh, And I have, I have some ideas about how to do that, but it just reminds me of the old joke of the drunk who was on his hands and knees under a street lamp. And somebody said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for my keys. And they said, well, where did you lose them? And he said, well, I I lost them over there in that dark alley, but the light is better here. And that's, (laughs) that's, that's what we do, I think, with, with these quantitative measurements sometimes. I, I really enjoyed um, your piece on the three myths of ESG. And of course, anything that's become so popular so quickly will have myths. And um, at the first one being that ESG is not really new. And you bring up this blue jar in the British Museum. Yes, I was so excited to find there. I, I was in the British Museum uh, just walking down the uh, room and I saw this big blue glass jar and it says... East Indies Sugar Company. And then in bigger letters, it says, Not Made by Slaves. And there's a wonderful new book uh, that's called Not Made by Slaves about that jar and about that movement and about what went on. That was the first ever consumer boycott movement, the first ever grassroots political movement. And if the East Indies Sugar Company, as opposed to the West Indies, where there were slaves working, if they felt that it was a brand identifier, They felt that it would be distinction in the marketplace to put that on their glass jar, which it was, uh, then that shows you that ESG has been around for a long time and for financial reasons. East Indies didn't do that because they thought it was pretty or they thought it was nice. They did it because they thought they would sell more sugar, and they did. Not only was that the first consumer boycott and the first grassroots political movement, it was also the first effective boycott and political movement. And that is why, that is one of one core reason why the UK abolished slavery more than 30 years before the United States. There were other before we did. Too, mm-hmm. But geopolitical reasons, you know, it was not on on their premises in their country, uh, which was very different. But uh, but that had a lot to do with it. They had a peaceful dissolution of uh, enslavement instead of a war. 
Well, what you're saying is that even though public companies are governed by the markets and their investors, um, what you're saying is they also need to act in the public interest to become sustainable, to remain sustainable long term. Is that a good way of describing how you see this public-private division? Not exactly, because uh, in when I first got into the business of corporate governance in the late 1980s, 22 states were in the process of very quickly adopting what are called stakeholder laws. So almost half of the states. And those states explicitly said, and first of all, I think we can agree, it doesn't matter what 22 states do. It only matters what what Delaware does, because that's where all the companies are incorporated. Correct. Okay, nevertheless, Mm -hmm. 22 states jumped on the bandwagon and and endorsed these uh, stakeholder laws saying that corporations should consider not just their shareholders, but also their employees in the community and their suppliers and and, uh, customers, which is fine. First of all, no company is going to stay in business unless they are considering the interests of their employees, their suppliers, their community, et cetera. Those stakeholder laws were not adopted because we care about stakeholders. They were all adopted in the middle of the hostile takeover era to provide cover for companies that were trying to uh, avoid what was in the best interest of their shareholders. And just to give you an idea, one of those laws, the law in Massachusetts, was signed by then Governor Michael Dukakis in the corporate headquarters of Gillette, which was the subject of a hostile takeover. And the entire statute, if it couldn't be more clear, was uh, enacted to protect them. Uh, the reason that we didn't get a law like that in Delaware is that the case law was already pretty much in that in that camp. So it didn't need one. But it just shows you that that accountability to everybody is accountability to nobody. At the end of the day, everything has to be in service of sustainable long-term shareholder value. Fortunately, guess who the big shareholders are? They are long-term shareholders. They are index funds and pension funds who are there for the long haul. So it seems to me that they are an excellent, if I can use the word proxy, for the public interest. But if we give corporate boards and executives too much authority to decide with a dartboard every day, who they're going to be accountable to or what their priority is on a day-to-day basis, uh, we're, we're not going to get where we need to be. Do you think um, ESG is a generational issue in part? I think younger people just take it for granted almost at this point. Oh, Eric, I completely agree. What do you think? I completely agree Mm -hmm. with you. There's a big demographic shift. And by the way, the same thing was true of organic. If I can go back to that as my. That's true. Yeah. As my example again, because in the 1970s, coming off sort of the hippie era, uh, the the beginning of the environmental movement, that was very much a part. And every single survey in the world will show you that Gen Z is much more interested in ESG issues than their parents. Now, this is a sort of a a pendulum swing always because the baby boomers were very, very crunchy in that way, very interested in organic and and the uh, similar virtues, you know, dolphin-free tuna, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, getting uh, aerosol cans off the market, all of those things. Um, but then there was a pendulum swing during the Reagan years as, uh, Gen X began to take over and they were much more interested in being yuppies and working on wall street and, you know, and all that. Obviously any demographic generalization is a big generalization, but there's no question about it that, 
and, and, and the pandemic has had a big effect on this too, that the current generation uh, is very much more interested in quality of life and in, in the issues of the environment than their parents. Well, speaking of the pandemic and now the energy crunch that we have, something I'm hearing more about is that maybe the E is going to come off the S and G because of the crunch of prices. Is that something that that concerns you and worries you because of what's going on in Europe, for example, going back to coal? How do you look at that problem? Uh, I would need at least another hour just to talk about that, but I'll give you just a couple of talking points. One is that, interestingly, this cover story of ESG and The Economist is in the other direction. They said, we don't have time for S&G right now. The climate is everything. That has to be the top priority. And uh, I think uh, they have some kind of a point there. Uh, I don't entirely agree because you can't connect one thing from the other. You can't disconnect one thing from the other. It's it's all, if I may say, organic. Um, But beyond that, uh, the behavior of the fossil fuel companies has been so shockingly disgraceful in terms of the millions of dollars that they spent in the last months of the Trump administration to shove out the door some especially pernicious regulations that amount to massive additional subsidies to fossil fuel. You know, all I want, I went, as you know, to the University of Chicago, I believe in the free market. I'm a entrepreneur. I've done four startups already. I believe in the free market. If we stop subsidizing uh, and allowing externalization by fossil fuel companies, let the market show them just how unpalatable it really is. So no, I do not, uh, I, I, we, you know, our, our opportunity to act on climate is so limited right now. We cannot stop for anything. Mm. I guess the question is, will we? because of this, the emergency, not should we, but will that create a challenge? Well, the challenge it creates is a uh, more rapid switch. Uh, if, you know, it seems to me that any basic economic analysis is, and we're seeing this actually happen, that if gas prices go up, people will buy more electronic cars. That's where you need to put your focus. How do you look at ESG internationally? Um, I know that uh, you know one of my previous guests, Nick Bennis in Japan, and he's been fighting an uphill battle. Are there countries that you think are doing a great job of ESG? Uh, Great, no, but good, yes. I think that Europe in general, EU, is doing a better job than the United States. And I think this is perhaps overly class half full, but I actually think that the realignment coming out of the uh, controversy over the Russia invasion of Ukraine is going to work in favor of lowering additional lowering of dependence on fossil fuels. So I think, and, and I think this legislation, if we can just, you know, get Senator Manchin to follow through on his promise, I think uh, will create a lot of incentives for better technology. And what, and what we will find is that you can save money. And the example that I give all the time is this. First of all, you have to understand that corporate governance and environmental issues have the same problem, which is that the United States could make the best laws imaginable. They could make the Nelmino dream team rules. 
it wouldn't matter because we're still going to be breathing China's air tomorrow. And we have to work on this on a global basis. So, and the same thing is true with corporate governance. We could have the best corporate governance laws in the world, but it might just encourage companies to reincorporate in the Cayman Islands or Bermuda or the Isle of Man. That's why we have to address it in a global way. Third point, you know, who else is global? Investors are global. If the Norwegian pension fund is the biggest in the world, world, they're invested in American companies. So it's not good enough for us to say, well, American invest, we're going to treat American investors this particular way because everybody's invested in us and we're invested in everybody. So we have to look at this uh, from, from a global perspective. And I think, uh, so it's great that the EU is doing a good job, but just like if Illinois uh, adopts better safety standards on trucks and trucks have to drive through Illinois, so everybody has to do it, I think that ultimately those standards are going to have to become universal. And India as well, which will soon become the most populous nation in the world. Yeah. And the environmental issues there are extreme. They just are. Extreme. They're and, and tragic. Yeah. So um, you had mentioned that you're writing a a brief for the SEC. I'm curious what you think about Gary Gensler. And I saw uh, recently an an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying that some of the things that he was doing, they felt did not have a legal basis and would eventually be overturned. And I can't, as a lawyer, I cannot help but ask you if it was involved with SEC, what you, what you believe about that. Or if you even saw that article. Yeah. Well, first of all, no one ever has to pay any attention to anything that the op-ed or editorial pages of the uh, Wall Street Journal have to say. They operate out of an unbelievably narrow and um, not fact-based approach to everything. Uh, And, uh, you know, so I would say stick with the actual legitimate journalism at the at the Wall Street Journal. I'll, the uh, I understand that a lot of ultra conservative academics support that point of view. Uh, one of the fights that I've been having with the SEC, um, not with the SEC, but at the SEC, is with uh, academics who file comments without revealing who is funding their research. Uh, because when you drill is that them, allowed? Yes, as a matter of fact. And if you drill down, you usually find out that the research is being funded by the very corporations that they are touting. There was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, an anti-ESG op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last month, and it did two things. It cited what they said was a report giving Ds and Fs to particular uh, institutional shareholders for their votes on... um, on fossil fuel issues without revealing that those grades were granted by a group funded by fossil fuel companies. And also without revealing that one of the authors had just started an anti-ESG fund of his own. So, you you know, take everything they say with a grain of salt. There is also a very good filing with the SEC recently from a large group of former securities lawyers and securities law professors that really spells out in great detail why everything Gary Gensler is doing is completely legitimate. Now, having said that, the Supreme Court and some of the other recent uh, judicial appointees seem to be clinging to some of these 
very radical new theories about the executive branch, that EPA case that they decided in the last week of the term is very troubling. So we'll see where the courts go with it. But in terms of what the settled law is right now, everything he's doing is solidly supported. Okay. Now, um, I thought maybe we'd talk about boards for a minute as well. Yeah. And I saw an article or read an article where you were just, you described yourself as a board anthropologist, which I thought was very intriguing. And that was back in 2003. Do you think things have gotten better or worse since then in all of the things that you can imagine should have been improved 20 years later? They've gotten vastly better in most ways. Uh, You know, when I first got into this field, I was constantly told that boards were there to act in case of emergency. And I would always reply, they are there to prevent emergency. Uh, And the, uh, the wonderful Jeff Sonnenfeld, one of my absolute favorite academics at Yale, wrote a fabulous book about the failures of boards on their single most important job, CEO succession planning. Uh, uh, that I highly recommend to everybody. So the hero's farewell is what it's called. And um, so they've gotten so much, they're much more independent, much more stock ownership, which of course, nothing makes them think about shareholders better than being a shareholder. Uh, They are much more highly qualified. Uh, You won't believe me when I tell you this, but it is 100% true. When I got into this field in the late 80s, O.J. Simpson was on five boards, and he was on the audit committee of one of them. The other person, it was a two-person audit committee. The other person was not famous, but he didn't know anything more about accounting than O.J. did. And, you know, I would hope that today that would be a short signal to the market uh, to see that kind of configuration on the board. So boards are a lot better. They're a lot more active, a lot more uh, qualified, a lot more uh, engaged. But they have completely failed on CEO pay. Uh, it's a disaster. And no matter what we do, it just seems to pour gasoline on the fire. And um, and there's still, you know, of course, very little progress with diversity, um, very little progress uh, on uh, a number of issues. So th- I have a kind of a Dickensian best of times, worst of times. It's much, much better than it was in most areas, but it's worse in a couple too. You know, I have a, uh, a lot of friends who'll say things to me like, I would never join the board I was asked of a public company today. I might join the advisory board instead because I don't want that responsibility or liability. Um, is do you think that that, and before I never used to hear that, people were delighted to be serve on a board. Is that maybe part of the problem that maybe some of the best and brightest are afraid? Oh, no, that's the solution. Anytime <laughs> somebody says that to you, you say, congrats, you know, if you had them on Tinder or something, that's where you would swipe left because then the person <laughs> telling you they should not be on the board uh, because it, it, they're it, disqualifying it, themselves yeah, they're is what you're saying. That's a, because, you know, it used to be there's a wonderful description of being on a board written by a, a British board member years ago saying it was like a lovely warm bath. You don't want those people. And by the way, it's ridiculous for them to mention potential liability as almost no director has ever had to pay a penny out of his own pocket. They all have director and officer liability. And, uh, and exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that that's ridiculous. That never happens. Uh, and so I don't believe that at all. I think they don't want to do the hard work, 
uh, which is re- which is required of them now after Sarbanes Oxley and Dodd Frank, and that again is exactly why they should not be on the board. You know, I was talking many years ago with one of the toughest, meanest people I ever met. I mean, he was ruthless, and uh, we were talking about term limits on boards, which I'm not, I don't have strong feelings about it one way or another, really. But he was explaining to me why he was in favor of term limits. And I said, well, what's the, you know, why, why do you need them? He said, because we had, a, I was on a board and one of our guys was an alcoholic. We never would have been able to get rid of him without the term limits. I said, are you letting me know that you allowed him to stay on the board for another couple of years until he reached the term limit? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, look, if you, one of the toughest, meanest people I ever met, can't sit the guy out down and say, either you go to Betty Ford or you leave, but one way or another, you know, you're not staying on this board, uh, then we have a much bigger problem because this is literally why we pay you the big bucks is so that you can have those difficult conversations. If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and The Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. Now, are there companies that you admire in terms of their corporate governance that stand out to you? Do you have a, be- a top 10 best list or a worst list? Or uh, I used to do a worst list. In my previous company, which we sold to MSCI, uh, we rated boards A through F, like bonds, A through junk, like bonds. And we rated them not based on their resumes, not based on their rhetoric, but based on the actual decisions they made. So in other words, if they overpay the CEO, they're a bad board. If you you can't say no to the CEO on pay, on ridiculous pay, then it's a bad board. And I'm happy to say that uh, we called out, and first first list of grades we gave, we gave a bad grade uh, to a company and took a lot of flack for it because it was at that time the fastest growing stock in the history of the New York Stock Exchange, but later that year, it became the 11th biggest bankruptcy in U.S. history. So that was good. And that was that had to do with the pay plan, which among Are we things, talking about Enron? No, no, this was <laughs> no. before Enron. This was Global Crossing. And here's what, here's what tipped us off. Not only was the make and model of the Mercedes that he was being given as a signing bonus included in his contract, and not only did the contract provide that the company would fly his mother out to visit him first class once a month, but the contract also provided that he got 2 million shares at $10 a share below market. Now, I take that as a signal that he thinks the stock's going to decrease in value. I like to see the give him the shares at $10 a share above market. That, to me, shows somebody who's confident that things are going to go well. So anyway, so on that basis, we said it was a, a disaster. And so... Uh, you know, I think I think people need to look for sort of the O.J. Simpsons and the other tells on boards. The ones that I think are good, obviously, I think I understand that it's an anomalous, and so it's kind of a cheat answer. But obviously, I think Berkshire Hathaway has got a has got a great board. It doesn't meet the usual checklists on corporate governance, but I don't care about that. It has the ultimate pay for performance. Everybody's got a lot of stock and. But it's an unusual company for many, 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 many reasons. So I understand that that's not that fair. So I will say that the companies that I think do well are that in most occasions, when disaster strikes, the board steps up and does the right thing. And I'm and I'm always impressed by that. But in terms of day-to-day, no, I don't think there are any boards that I would give an A to. Okay. Well, maybe to, to uh, segue into talking about the media a little bit, we can talk about media companies 
And uh, of course, everybody's been fixated on what's going on with Twitter. But uh, in my mind, also coming from a media family background, um, to me, media is a very special kind of company. It's, it combines a public good and a private good and the trust of the people that you you know provide the news to. How do you look at what's going on with Twitter and the liability they might or might not have for what their users post? Uh, Section 203, right? And do you think that that's going to go away? the protection that they have, Facebook and so forth? I do think it will be cut back. uh, And I think it should be cut back. That was always intended as a temporary measure in order to uh, allow these companies to grow. And I think it's fair to say they've all grown. (laughs) They're all, they're at some of the biggest companies in terms of market capitalization that we have. They're very influential. Um, As far as Twitter goes, it's important to make absolutely clear First Amendment does not apply to Twitter. First Amendment has to do with government limits on speech. Twitter is a private company. And if they think it's in the best interest of their shareholders that Twitter users should not be allowed to spread disinformation about COVID or uh, suggest violent overthrow of the government or whatever, if they think that they can make more money by making people tweet an iambic pentameter, that's their decision to make. They're a private company. You can either buy shares in them or not. That is fine. So or use uh, them or not. Or yeah. use them or not. You can become, you know, and and not only that, when you opened your account on Twitter, you signed an agreement saying, I won't do any, I won't defame anybody, I won't do pornography, I won't do you, you know, so fine. That's that's great. Um I'm guessing that Twitter will go the way someday of MySpace and Facebook will go the way of MySpace and AOL. That's just the way things work in this world is that companies rise and fall. Uh, Bob and I have written a corporate governance textbook that's gone through five editions. And in each edition, we have a decade by decade chart showing the largest companies in the U.S. by market cap. And you can imagine that in, you know, like the 1960, 1970 charts, you got General Motors, you got, you know, you have the same companies over and over at Eastman Kodak, and then they start to fall off and you start having companies in the list that didn't even exist uh, when the when the chart begins. And that's the way, that's just the way of the world. That's That's the Darwinian nature of the market. So I do think that there will be some additional um, uh, bolstering of the restrictions that these companies are in, allowed to uh, impose. And I think that that's a good thing, but I also think that they're going to be overtaken by new companies anyway. You know, um, I read a wonderful quote uh, of yours and uh, I'm just going to read it. The main point we have to make is that this is a multifunctioning problem that has to be addressed by every institution in this country, by shareholders, by public citizens, by local governments, by governments, by journalists. We have each got to look at each other. Each has a role to play. And I think that that's the best description I've read in a long time of how complex this topic really is of freedom of speech. I mean, since you brought up media companies, I'll just say that in general, I'm very much opposed to dual class stock. However, acknowledge that there's never been a newspaper that was world class in this country that didn't have dual class stock. And those that did have it and got rid of it immediately went downhill. 
And it's because of what you just said. Is that said. right? Yes. That's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's because of what you just said. It is because media companies have two obligations and you always want that essence of journalism to be free from any kind of interference from the market. You don't want the shareholders coming in and saying, we think you should be more left-wing or more right-wing or whatever. So I, if I could, I would say that all newspapers, you know, we know what's happened in the newspaper business, but I would say that all newspapers should have dual class because the ones that have had that structure have been the most um, accurate uh, and the most dedicated to the public good. That's that's fascinating. I did not know that. Uh, you mentioned uh, an app called NewsGuard, mm-hmm. um, to which tells you when you're surfing on the internet if this is a reliable source or not. And so I decided to to download that. But then in the agreement, it says, "Well, we can search all your past history and your future history and so forth." So I ended up not doing it. But it, it really brings up something: we've lost that curation that used to happen uh, from trusted sources and editors and so forth that would first filter things before we read them. So it it just seems to me, though, in spite of my reservations, that it's a novel approach to trying to solve that issue of trust in the media. I do like NewsGuard very much. I understand the hesitation that you have, but it's all aggregated and that's what helps them discover different sources and evaluate different sources. And, you know, I think my example again of the Wall Street Journal, which is a very classy organization, that they print a, a reference to this rating system without even checking out who's giving it, uh, is shocking to me. So we used to have very firm journalistic standards that really only go back about a hundred years. It was really Ida Tarbell around uh, the early 1900s who, who they started coming up with this idea of you should have two sources. Uh, you should uh, publish. It was only in the 1960s and 70s that newspapers started publishing corrections in a prominent way. I mean, the idea of journalistic standards is still fairly new. And, it, and I, I'm sorry to see us go away from it. On the one hand, I do love the idea of sort of the citizen journalist. I look at Twitter all the time. I discover things that I would not discover anywhere else. On the other hand, you have to be very, very, very skeptical. And you do before you want to pass something along. I, I, you know, uh, there was a guy actually that I knew from New Trier who was uh, politically at the other end of the spectrum for me, and that's okay. And I didn't have a problem with it. But during the uh, first uh, Trump presidential campaign, he sent me an article, I'm making air quotes around this, an article saying that Tim Kaine, who was our former governor and senator and and uh, is now our senator and and was uh, Hillary Clinton's running mate, had announced that he was going to ban Catholicism from the United States if he got elected. And first of all, he's Catholic, okay? Second of all, if that happened, don't you think it would be a front page story on every newspaper in the world? And this was from, you know, just some very fringy site. And so I had to block this guy because if he was going to send me stuff like that, I just didn't want him in my life at all anymore. So you have to have a lot of skepticism. On the one hand, it's great, particularly as local news outlets have folded and there's very, very little local news in newspapers anymore. It's great to have other sources for that. On the other hand, remember, there's a lot of Russian disinformation. There's a lot of other kinds of very pernicious disinformation and people need to be very skeptical. You know, just thinking uh, about your father's tenure at the FCC and the fairness doctrine as well. 
And I, I read a discussion that you all had with mm-hmm. your sisters as well, and it was just wonderful to read that. And um, just the minds at work and the experience, um, it, was, it was fascinating. But you brought up a point about scarcity that scares that used to be that media sources, even, you know, spectrum, it was very scarce and therefore it had to be allocated. But now we almost have the opposite of scarcity, don't we? Yeah, we have, we have too much media. We're, we're drowning in media. And yeah, so that was the, the, the reason that you were allowed to impose a public interest standard on television was because it was a public airwaves and you had to choose one over another, you're going to do it on the basis of that. And my father, after he left the FCC, argued a case to take away a license from a woman who was broadcasting 24-7 anti-Semitism, racism. I mean, it was awful. Today, of course, she probably is off there podcasting somewhere and there's really nothing we could do. Right. So, uh, so that's a problem. On the other hand, when you and I were growing up, we did have the fairness doctrine. We did have the TV uh, station always saying, if you have an idea, then you don't agree with what we said. Come on over to the station. We'll mm-hmm. put you on the air. That was great. But we also had a lot of white men and a very limited view of what was newsworthy and what was not. You know that when Elvis died, two out of the three broadcast news programs didn't even mention it. You could not imagine that would happen today. So we have a many, many more sources of news, many more kinds of news, and that has its good points and its bad points. Well, also the movie industry, which you follow, you author something which I just started reading, Movie Moms. And I, uh, I have a granddaughter now and I have the responsibility. She loves to watch movies with me on Friday nights. And so I have an, uh, an entirely new source now <laughs> to make sure that I'm showing her something that is appropriate for her, but also worth, worth her time and worth my time to watch with, with her. But how do you see the movie industry as it's evolved since we first knew each other till now, um, television and all of these multiple platforms, even on Facebook? Um, under reels, there are these little mini movies and dramas that you can watch, some of which are kind of mesmerizing too, very poorly acted, but still they're producing something like a movie. So as a movie critic, how do you see the future of the, the movie industry evolving? I think the movie industry is doing uh, better than it has since the 1930s because we have so many different outlets. Even I can't keep up with the all anymore. Uh, I, I picked up a few extra streaming services during the pandemic, and um, I could spend my whole life watching that. And Netflix and Amazon and Apple have created opportunities for kind of a middle grade, middle size kind of movie budget that had pretty much fallen out of favor as the studios from their you know, green eye shade, cost benefit analysis, we're devoting more of their attention to another Fast and Furious movie, another superhero movie, another franchise. And the, that, that same openness that we have with journalism is available uh, online. And I love it when somebody like Issa Rae has a YouTube series that all of a sudden becomes a HBO series uh, because she's just that good. So uh, the, it, many more avenues are are opening up to many more kinds of voices. I think that is great. And the Me Too movement has had a 
big effect on Hollywood for many, many years. It was almost impossible for a woman to get a job as a director, and it has really opened up. And and the same is true for BIPOC, for LGBTQ. Uh, so we're getting a much bigger variety of stories now. And so I think the movies are doing very, very well. Movie theaters is another story, but the movie industry, I think, is doing very well. Well, the barriers to entry, and not just for movies, but also for music, mm-hmm. um, have have changed dramatically. I guess the issue is there's just a lot more noise, harder to get a bigger audience. You well, have to really... Mention, as long as you're talking yeah. about your granddaughter, that I did write a book called The Movie Mom's Guide to Family Movies, which has got 500 great movies for families to watch together. I mean, you may know what National Velvet is, but if you have a child, they don't know National Velvet. They don't know the classic Disney, you know, 101 Dalmatians and all that. And and watching those movies with every movie write-up that I do, I always say, and here's some things you might want to discuss after you see the movie. And uh, if you like this movie, here are some other ones that are like it. And I really, you know, I started doing that in 1995. Actually, this week is the anniversary in 1995. You know, I started on the World Wide Web and started putting up movie reviews and Five years later, at that time, there was not one single corporation or publication on the web. It was mostly college students saying, here's my dorm room. And five years later, I had an archive of reviews and Yahoo, which didn't exist when I started, asked me to be their movie critic. And I got a book contract and I got on the radio just like I was on WNTH. And uh, here I am again. Um, Well, we'll definitely post a link to your book on our website and um, also to your blog. I think that it's terrific. It's just I I enjoyed reading it this weekend. And so it seems that show business, the movies and ESG are here to stay. We didn't get a chance really to talk about crypto. I know you sent me something (laughs) about that. But we'll do that another time. (laughs) But, uh, you know, and I'd love to touch on the idea of digital identities around the world too, and how that could be helpful to that, especially for global public health. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the problems that women have is that they don't have an identity card in some of these countries. So when it comes to vaccinations, the main thing you have to have is an identity to know whether you have been or should be vaccinated. And that doesn't exist for like a billion people at least. So um, it's an exciting new world with all of this technology, but it's fraught with all kinds of, of new challenges that we have to that we have to face. So thank you so much, Nell, for being with me today. I really, really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope everybody will. Um, I'll, I'll post everything news guards so people can try that out. Um, I, I really learned a lot from reading what you've been writing recently. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to the people behind the scenes, too, who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. Thank you.